I'm going to bring the word forth this morning to you. Let's start, if you've got your Bibles, open to Isaiah 40. Sort of excited about this message this morning. We're going to look at a lot of a lot of verses out of this chapter, starting at verse 12. And this is from the New Living Translation, Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They're nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as it were a grain of sand. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? You could put your name in there where Jacob is. Oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? And again, you could put your name in there as well. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Let's pray over the word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to open the eyes of our understanding today so we can better understand your character. And as we do, let our confidence in your promises become stronger and unshakable. So we'll be known as people who have the ear of God and who get results when we pray. We give you thanks for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Everyone in this sanctuary this morning has some concept of God's character. What pleases Him, what makes Him angry, what His thoughts are towards man, what He considers right and wrong. And our image of God's character shapes our worldview, what we think about life, death, the hereafter, the sanctity of life, right and wrong, prayer, and our service to Him. When we think about ancient religions, we conjure up images of idol worship. An idol can be defined as something you devote your strength to and draw your strength from instead of God. It's a misplaced trust. Our text this morning is a classic passage on the greatness of God in contrast to the vanity of idols. I believe it's more important now than ever to remind ourselves of just how great our God is in the midst of a world that's chasing down its own idols of power, sex, fame, and fortune. And when the culture around us has become untethered from his truth and sinking in the quicksand of individual truth, which changes almost daily. Recently, I pulled a book off my shelf that was written in 1993. It's called The Book of Virtues by William Bennett. And in the introduction, the author states, the vast majority of Americans share a respect for honesty, compassion, courage, and perseverance. And now 30 years later, after that was written, 
I wonder if Americans still value those traits. A large segment of our society doesn't even believe God exists. And those that do believe often have a distorted view of his character. I would argue that the traits William Bennett listed are negotiable for many people today. They may value honesty, but if they can save a few hundred bucks cheating on their taxes, who's going to know? They may all be for showing compassion towards someone, just as long as that person's politics align with theirs. Courage is now viewed as someone standing up to declare their right to be whatever gender they choose, and perseverance for many lasts only as long as it feels good. Well, you might say, there's never been a time in history when all people were good, Brother Dave. True. But there was a time not too long ago when most people would have been ashamed to call good evil and evil good. So why am I talking about all this? Because our text shows us that God's character is all-powerful, unchangeable, and uncompromising, which is vastly different than the culture we live in. And if we lose sight of God's character by letting our culture rub off on us, it will impede our faith. A.W. Tozer said, Faith does not rest upon promises. Faith rests upon character. Faith must rest in confidence upon the one who made the promise. So today and next Sunday, I want us to look at the character of God. My desire is that your confidence in the Lord will grow. You'll begin to lay hold of his promises without those nagging doubts of, can he do it? And will he do it? Character is defined as a person's attributes, traits, or abilities. The depth of our interaction with someone is largely determined by our perception of the quality of that person's character. Let me say that again. The depth of our interaction with someone is largely determined by our perception of the quality of that person's character. If a man lies to you half the time, you are unlikely to put your confidence in that man. If a woman steals something from the store every time you go with her, you're going to start distancing yourself from her. Likewise, if you pray to God over an extended period of time and never get an answer to your prayers, a chill and discouragement will settle over you, and you'll find yourself spending less and less time with Him until the vibrant fellowship you once had feels like a dry, lifeless experience. And though you may not express it in words, you wonder inside if God can be trusted any more than the man that lies or the woman who steals. When we look at the character of God, we can separate his attributes into two categories, absolute attributes and moral attributes. It's not important for you to remember those terms. We just use it to to delineate here. Absolute attributes are the traits of God's character that only he possesses. Moral attributes are the traits of God's character that believers can and should possess to some degree as they grow in their walk with him. Today we're going to look at the absolute attributes, the traits of God's character that only he possesses. There are several of these, but for the sake of time we're only going to discuss a few today. I want to forewarn you, most of these attributes are going to challenge your natural minds They're very to, to fully comprehend them. The first two absolute attributes are closely aligned. God is self-existent and God is eternal. Let's turn to Exodus, the third chapter. 
Exodus 3, this is the account where Moses encounters God in the burning bush. And God is asking Moses to deliver his people Israel from the hand of Egypt. In Exodus 3, Moses asked God a question in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When God revealed his name, I am, to Moses in the burning bush, he was revealing something very important about himself, namely that he is self-existent. He exists by his own power. No one made him or caused him to be. He depends on nothing and no one for his existence. This is a quality that no other creature shares. That's why it's laughable to hear Lucifer say, I will be like the Most High. He's nothing compared to God. One man of God observed, there are only three possible explanations for anything that exists now. It is self-created, it is eternal, or it is created by something that is eternal. The same man argued that for something to be self-created is the equivalent of a rabbit being pulled out of a hat without the rabbit, without the hat, and without the magician. And so you think, well, then there wouldn't be any example of that, would there be? Oh, but yes, there is. One example the secular world often cites as something self-created is the universe. Science teaches that several billion years ago, the universe exploded into being and essentially created itself without the aid of an eternal being. I like something Keith Moore said. He equates this to setting off TNT in an automobile junkyard and expecting a fully formed Mercedes to emerge once the dust settles. I don't know about you, but that takes more faith for me than believing in the Bible description. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hallelujah. God's eternal attribute refers to God's relation to time. Past, present, and future are known equally to him. Time is like a parade. Man sees only a segment of that parade. God sees it from the beginning to end because he lives outside of time. He always was, he always is, and he always will be. I told you these things would challenge your minds. Last summer, my wife and I visited our hometown in western New York, and we watched the annual Fireman's Parade. I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but this is Mecca to my wife up there in western New York. The street was lined with people, but we found a little spot next to a tree where we could watch a tiny segment of the parade as it passed. But if we had had a drone, we could have soared way above that crowd and gotten a view of the whole parade as it snaked down Main Street. God is like that drone. He sees the beginning and end of your life. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing. He has given you his Holy Spirit to lead you down the best pathway for your life. And if you stray off that path, he knows exactly how to get you back on it if you ask him. I'm talking from experience here. And I'm possible that there are others here that have experienced that as well. 
God's self-existence and eternity are clearly stated in the scriptures. John 5.26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Psalm 90 and 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. The next absolute truth we want to absolute attribute we want to look at is God's immutability. This means that God's nature, his attributes, his awareness, his will, and his promises never change. What we know of God can be known with certainty. He's not different from one day to the next. This aspect of his character becomes an anchor to your faith when you let it sink in. I'm 67 years old, and I can tell you my body looks and feels different than it did 30 years ago. I like to think I've learned more over the years, but I also realize the more I know, the more questions I have. God is not like that. Malachi 3.6, he says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Since he never changes, his promises never change. There's a lot of talk today about moving to a digital currency in our banking systems. If I knew that next month the Federal Reserve notes we use every day would no longer be redeemable, I would stop taking them immediately and begin converting the cash I have into something that would be redeemable. Likewise, if I thought that God's promises would no longer be fulfilled, that God had changed his mind on some of them, then I would put this Bible on my bookshelf next to the books of fiction. So it would no longer be an anchor for my soul. God's promises do not change. This means if he healed in the past, he still heals today. If he delivered people from the strongholds of sin and addiction in the past, he's still doing that today. If he provided for people's needs in the past, he's providing for those needs today. The progress and change may characterize some of his works, but God himself remains unchanged. For instance, we don't stone to death a man and woman who commit adultery anymore as is required by the law. But we follow the admonition of Jesus who says, repent and sin no more. I went to college in my 40s, so I already knew what I believed in. Unlike so many wide-eyed students that, that enter college doors today, they're sort of like a flock of little birds saying, where you lead me, I will follow what you feed me. I will swallow. I had a secular professor who surprisingly referenced Jesus to support her ungodly view on something. She said, Jesus accepted people just like they were. I raised my hand and I said, he accepts people where they are, but he doesn't expect them to stay that way. She rolled her eyes. And needless to say, I was not her favorite student in that class. We had other interchanges like that throughout the semester. I think she was glad to see the end, semester end. The next attribute we want to look at is God's omnipresence. It means God is not limited or confined to any one place, and he personally witnesses 
everything we do. That's pretty sobering. We understand the world around us with the idea of being in a space. This morning you came from your homes. Today, right now, currently, we're in Grace Harvest Church. When you leave, you'll go to another location. We're only in one place at one time, aren't we? Now, with the use of computers and technology, we can witness activities in other locations other than where we are, but we're still physically in one place. For instance, I could take my cell phone, access my Ring doorbell app, and the person at the door may think I'm inside the house, but I'm seven miles away. We're limited, aren't we? So where is God in respect to location? He is spirit, which means he's not made up of physical matter like we are. He's not confined to any part of the universe, but is present in all his power. Think about that. He's present in all his power at every point in space and at every moment in time. You know, you remember that that verse where Jesus was was in somebody's house and, and the Pharisees were there and the verse said, and the presence of the Lord to heal was there. The presence of the Lord to heal is here because he's here. Hallelujah. And you say, well, what does that mean then if two or more are, are gathered together, I am there in your midst? If he's already everywhere, what difference does it make if two or more are gathered? There's a difference between him being here and him manifesting his presence. And what we want is his manifest presence, don't we? That's what we seek for and that's what we strive for. That's what we hunger for. But the important thing to remember is he is everywhere. And his power is everywhere, ready to be tapped into. God does not belong to any one nation or any generation. He is God of all the earth, the heavens, and beyond the universe. Darkness can't hide you from him. Walls and locked doors can't block his access. Running from from him doesn't distance him from you. There's no place you can go where God is not there. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Psalm 139, 7 through 10 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Hallelujah. The last attribute we want to look at is God's omniscience. This means he's all-knowing. Because God's presence reaches everywhere at the same time, He knows everything simultaneously, past, present, and future. And he knows what could have been. Let's focus this morning on three things that God knows. First of all, he knows our hearts. He knows the thoughts we conceive, the imaginations we entertain, the desires in our hearts, and the motives behind our actions. He knows us better than we know ourselves. I think one of the things that stood out, if you remember a few weeks back, we were talking about some of the near-death experiences people have had where they've gone to heaven. And the thing that stood out to me the most, and maybe Brother Witt would concur with this, is that time and again they said when they met the Lord, 
he knew me. He knew everything about me. Well, of course he would, because that's what the Word teaches us. Psalm 139.2.4 says, You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So he knows our hearts. He also knows the future. Nothing happens anywhere of which he is ignorant. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He not only knows the future, the things that would have played out if he had made another choice in your life. You ever had that point where you've, you've, you're at a crossroads, you've got to make this decision or that decision. And you make a decision, <clears throat> and then you wonder, what would have happened if I had made that other decision? He knows. When David was on the run from those determined to kill him, he thought about going into the city of Kilah to seek refuge. He asked the Lord if the men of Kilah would surrender him, him to his enemies. The Lord said, they will surrender you. So David did not enter the city. God saved his life by telling him something that never actually took place. When Christians actually believe that God knows the future, and that his Holy Spirit is inside of us to lead us and to guide us, we will stand out in this messed up world, I think, as the most steadfast, immovable creatures on this planet. Finally, God knows our needs. Jesus pointed this truth out when he was teaching on prayer in Matthew 6, 8. He said, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Just because he knows, we still have to ask, don't we? I heard a man of God say that God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. The reasons for that is another sermon altogether. But the important thing for you to remember this morning is you do need to ask. God knows every thought. Every imagination, every desire and motive you have ever had and will have. He knows the sorrows, injustices, and pains you've suffered yourself and the ones you've inflicted on others. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? He knows the outcome of every decision you will ever make. He knows what your future holds. He knows where you stand in relation to him. As I close in prayer this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to check your own hearts for the things you thought maybe you were hiding from the Lord. Things that maybe our culture said were okay, but they actually go cross-grain with the character of God. I want to encourage you to make things right with Him today because He has a magnificent future laid out for you. Let's pray. Father, we open our hearts to you this morning. We ask you to forgive us for those things we've tried to hide from you. Cleanse us by the precious blood of Jesus. Give us the strength we need to walk in a manner worthy of you, Lord, pleasing to you. Jesus, be Lord over our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Help us to be the salt and light on this earth that you intended. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for it. Amen. Amen.
Next week we're going to be looking at the attributes of God that are called the moral attributes, and these are the ones that we would have and should have. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. And thank you. You're dismissed.